0: Know this now, if you did not know it before, that while one Athenian remains alive, we will never make alliance with Xerxes. Now, then, it is time for us to go forth together into Boeotia and give him battle. The words of the Athenians to the Spartans after the Battle of Salamis, when the Persians sent Athens an offer to form an alliance against the Spartans. Welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. It is 480 years before the birth of Christ, and the allied Greek fleet has just defeated the Persian Navy on the waters off the coast of Athens, near an island called Salamis. The enemy has taken flight. The sea, as far as the Cyclades, is free of Persian ships. The great mass of troops that sacked and burned Athens has marched away to the north. The victors, have taken some time to congratulate themselves. Heroes have been acclaimed and prizes have been awarded. But the war is not over. Among the allies, the Athenians know this better than anyone, for it is their burnt city whose embers still glow in the evening gloom. To the north, in the province of Boeotia, the Persian general Mardonius abides still with an army of 300,000 men. Most of his troops are from various regions in Asia, Some of them, though, are Greeks. In all, there are more than enough soldiers there to suppress dissent in any province of the Persian Empire, and to complete the conquest of stubborn Greece, should the opportunity arise. Greece, however, is not entirely a province of the empire. As long as one Athenian lives, there will be no peace until the barbarian is expelled from Europe. This fourth and final episode in the Persian War series will bring us to the battle of Plataea, the final victory of the Greeks in Europe. If you have enjoyed this series on the Persian War, I encourage you to check out my website, western-traditions.org. You can find all the episodes of this podcast there, as well as some helpful maps and pictures, source lists, and some good books to read to support your own investigations into our Western traditions. You can also support my work by purchasing Western Traditions merchandise or by contributing directly through the PayPal and Patreon options found there. I am also turning some of my episodes, including this one, into YouTube videos. Just look up the Western Traditions Podcast on YouTube, and wherever you hear me, on Spotify, YouTube or some other platform, please remember to like, subscribe and share, and leave a comment or question for me. For now, let's get on with the liberation of Greece. Themistocles was the true hero of Salamis. His resolve, his valor, and his underhanded trickery had all been put to the test in keeping the allied Greek navy at their station near Salamis, probably the best location for a battle against the huge Persian fleet. He had been regaled after the battle for being so wise with regards to naval strategy. But Themistocles was also wise enough to prepare safe passage for himself to Persia some day. He had made sure during and after the battle to make xerxes think that he might actually be on the persian side popularity you see is a fickle thing and this was especially true in athens in the fifth century bc especially if you were a politician the athenians had devised the rule of ostracism because they wanted to be able to banish men who became too popular such men might try to make themselves tyrants so as soon as it looked like they were gaining too much popularity with the people Those who held a high office in the Athenian government would organize resistance against such popular men and, eventually, call for their ostracism. I briefly described this process of ostracism in the last episode. The Athenians, in assembly, would each write the name of the man they wished to see ostracized on a pottery shard. These would then be collected, and if a sufficient number of shards accumulated with a particular man's name, that man was deemed ostracized. He had 10 days to settle his affairs, and then he would have to leave for a set period of time, often as much as 10 years. This process could then interrupt the man's popularity. Out of town for 10 years, his political opponents and his allies could rest easy, and they could assert their own ambitions, until they too were ostracized. How this political system managed to defeat the Persian Empire is as much a marvel as the actual battlefield victories, but anyway... Themistocles would not be banished yet. He drops out of the public record in Athens immediately after Salamis, and he plays no role in the coming land battle at Plataea. but we will hear more about Themistocles in future episodes. Mardonius, though, the Persian general who had played a large role in the campaigns against Greece since even before Marathon, Mardonius was still in the game. Now he wintered in Thessaly, plotting on how to best subjugate Greece and win the approval of his king and his uncle, Xerxes. His initial intent, which was almost always an effective strategy in these matters, was to sow dissent among the rebellious allies and turn them against one another. Meanwhile, one of the other high-ranking Persians that remained in Greece, Artabasus, had been left in the area with a much smaller force, He engaged during this time in besieging two towns in the province of Chalcidas, far to the north. He sacked the town of Olynthus and slew all of its inhabitants. He then tried to bypass the wall before the coastal town of Potidaea, but he tried this during low tide. Suddenly, the tide came in furiously while his troops were still in transit, and most of them were killed. Thus, Artabasus took the remainder of his small army away, and he joined Mardonius at the beginning of the year 479 BC. In the meantime, the Persian fleet had rallied at the island of Samos, just off the coast of Anatolia. They had essentially abandoned the Aegean Sea and were forbidden to seek battle with the Greeks. Instead, they were ordered simply to hold their station and watch for a Greek attack. So much fear had the tenacious though outnumbered Greeks instilled in their imperial enemies. Mardonius, at this time, tried to undermine allied unity by sending a Macedonian, by the name of Alexander, to Athens with an offer of peace. The Athenians were no fools. When they learned that an ambassador had come from from Mardonius, they did not need to listen to him to know what words his message might contain. They knew that this was an attempt to split the allies. So, instead of hearing out Alexander immediately, they made him wait, day after day, Knowing that word would reach the Spartans that a Persian envoy had come to Athens, they wanted to give the Spartans an opportunity to be present for the hearing, and they were not disappointed. The Spartans hurried their own ambassadors to Athens. After they arrived, the Athenians gave audience to Alexander, the mouthpiece of Mardonius, and let the Spartans attend the hearing. As expected, Alexander announced an offer from the Persians to forgive all the offenses of the Athenians, Furthermore, he told the Athenians, Mardonius would restore their territory and let them live on there as a free people, and the Persians would even rebuild all the temples that they had burned, on one condition, that they enter into a military alliance with him. But Mardonius also sent a threat, however softened it may have been by the plea for peace and alliance. These were, in paraphrase, the words Alexander passed along after the offer of unity, Why are you so mad as to wage war against the king, whom you cannot possibly overcome? You have seen the multitude and bravery of Xerxes' army. Do not lose your country and live in constant danger. Rather, agree to make peace. When Alexander was finished, the Spartan envoys were given an opportunity to speak. First, these representatives made a not-so-subtle dig about the potential hypocrisy of the Athenians allying with the Persians. After all, It was the Athenians who had started the war anyway. The Spartans then made an offer to the Athenians, and here it is, in paraphrase, Since you have lost your homes and your harvests for the last two years, we will feed and care for your women and your other non-combatants while we continue to wage this war together. Finally then, the Athenians rose and responded first to Alexander, who represented the Persians. We know, as well as you do, that the power of the mead is many times greater than our own. We did not need to have that cast in our teeth. And that set the tone for the rest of the reply. Nevertheless, we cling to freedom and will offer what resistance we may. Seek not to persuade us to make terms with the barbarians. Say what you will. You will never gain our assent. Return to Mardonius and tell him this. So long as the sun keeps its present course we will never make alliance with Xerxes. And then they turned to the Spartans, who had doubted Athenian will and persistence. Know this, if you did not know it before, that while one Athenian remains alive, we will never make alliance with Xerxes. They thanked the Spartans for their concern for their Athenian families and for their offer of sustenance. The kindness is complete on your part, the Athenians responded. Going on, they urged the Spartans to bring their troops out of the Peloponnesus and they finished their response with this. Now it is time for us to go forth together into Boeotia and to give the Persian battle. And now begins the ninth and final volume of Herodotus' history of the Persian War. The Athenians, after their victory at Salamis, had begun to slowly return to Athens and to begin rebuilding their city, albeit at a slowed pace, with so many of their able-bodied men still aboard ship or on land and still at alert for a Persian return. Unfortunately, the Spartans did not march forth in response to the Athenian request, Another holiday was upon them, and they remained behind the wall of the Isthmus, in their own Peloponnesian peninsula, focusing their attention on holding the feast of Hyacinthia. And we shall see in a moment again how the Spartans would hesitate to offer battle to the Persians after the second conquest of Athens. It is inevitable that the listener must pause now and reflect on everything that he learns about the Spartans in popular culture and compare it to what we read here in Herodotus. I have said before that Plutarch, who also wrote about the Spartans, he wrote nearly six centuries after these events, though, he creates an image of the Spartans that is monolithic and almost supernatural. Each Spartan man is a combination of Heracles, Odysseus, Agamemnon, and John Wayne, taciturn, impervious, invincible. I think this is somewhat a case of hero worship. The Spartans were, of course, really gone by the time that Plutarch wrote about them, Herodotus, however, lived in the wake of the Persian War, when the Spartans were still very much a Greek power. A close reading of his book reveals that the Spartans were indeed superior warriors and were so regarded by all their fellow Greeks, but they were not without their flaws, nor were they they without weaknesses. Eurybiades, the Spartan naval commander, after all, had essentially accepted a bribe from Themistocles, remember? And they were always holding festivals, it seemed. Literally every single time that their presence is required to save Greece, they are delayed or somehow impaired completely by a festival. The Athenians then were alone in Attica amid the ruins of their city when their reply, their refusal to make alliance, arrived at Mardonius' camp in Thessaly. Now Mardonius, upon hearing the Athenian reply, immediately assembled his 300,000-man army and marched southward, Through Thessaly and Boeotia towards Athens. The Thebans, his allies, tried to stop him in Boeotia to prepare a battlefield there, but Mardonius was eager to seize Athens a second time, and so he proceeded on, forcing all the Greeks of the lands through which his army passed, he forcing all of these Greeks to help him with provisions or to supplement his numbers with more troops. With no help arriving, the Athenians had no choice but to evacuate their city. Again, This time there were no stragglers. When Mardonius and his army arrived at Athens, ten months after the first occupation, he found a city completely vacant and still in ruins. With his army swarming over the land of Attica, Mardonius now sent a Greek envoy once more by ship to the Athenians on Salamis. The Greek brought with them another proposal from Mardonius for peace and reconciliation and for an alliance. One of the Athenian men in the council that heard this request, his name was Lysidus, after hearing the messenger, he rose and suggested to the council that this proposal should be brought before the Athenian people so that they could all vote on it together. His fellow councillors, so enraged that Lycidas would even consider such an option, they also rose to their feet and they stoned the man to death on the spot. The Greek envoy was sent back to Mardonius. The Athenian women also heard about Lycidas, about the man who dared suggest even listening to a Persian offer of parley. These women gathered around the dead man's home and stoned his wife and children to death as well. The Athenians were done fooling around. But the relationship drama with the Spartans continued, as it would for decades, really, even centuries, with Mardonius' army piling into Attica, the Athenians— Angered by the Spartans' repeated tardiness, by their apparent failure to take the threat of conquest seriously, the Athenians sent ambassadors from Salamis to Sparta to seek audience with the Ephors, who were the body of real decision-makers in all of Leketamon. See the 11th episode of this series on Sparta for an understanding of just who these Ephors were. On arrival, the Athenian envoys told the Spartans of the Persian offer. "'to make an alliance against the Spartans "'and their league of Peloponnesians "'and to have their city rebuilt. "'Nevertheless, they had not accepted this offer of peace, "'but they rebuked the Spartans with the following words, "'You made covenant with us "'to go meet the Persians in Boeotia, "'but when the time came, you were false to your word.' "'The Athenians finished the audience "'by inviting the Spartans once more "'to come to their aid and fight with them "'against the barbarians now occupying Attica.' and then they waited, while the Ephors considered their answer. The next day they waited more, and the next day, and the next. This went on for 10 days, the Athenian ambassadors waiting for an answer, while their people endured on Salamis, and the Persians occupied their homeland. Herodotus himself is not sure about the Spartan motives in what happened next, Perhaps, he suggests, the Spartans were putting the finishing touches on the wall at the Isthmus and considered possibly abandoning the Athenians and hoping to simply hold out on the Peloponnesus. He also states that during this time, a messenger came from Tegea in Arcadia, the central province of the Peloponnesus, not, and not a part of Lacetamon, but allied with them against the Persians. This allied messenger counseled the Spartans that the wall was not going to be enough, and he warned that, Were the Athenians to make peace with the Persians, the barbarians would find a way to conquer the peninsula, one way or another. So the exasperated Athenian envoys were brought before the ephors of Sparta after ten days of waiting. Now, they said the previously unthinkable, since the Spartans would not march, the Athenian envoys declared, Athens would come to terms with Mardonius and with him make war against whoever he made his enemy. The Ephors laconically replied, Our troops have already marched. Indeed, they had. Five thousand picked Spartan men, each with seven helots in service to him, were already on their way to the Isthmus and beyond. The final showdown with the Persians was underway. Shocked but elated, the Athenian ambassadors set off to follow the Spartan army to the battlefield. The marching Spartans numbered then, if we are to believe Herodotus, forty thousand in total. 5,000 actual Spartan warriors and 35,000 helots, who probably would have functioned as light troops and filled other supporting roles. He also says that in a later period of a few days, more Spartan soldiers followed. They were all commanded, overall, by a Spartan named Pausanias, who was regent for the son of Leonidas, who was still just a boy and too young to rule. Mardonius in Athens had not until this moment done any more damage to the city of Athens. He was hoping to bring the Athenians over to his side. When he heard that the Spartans had marched, though, he leveled what remained intact among the ruins and pulled out of the city, not so much out of fear, but because the area around Athens was not good ground for his army to fight on. Mardonius withdrew his army to Thebes, where he prepared for a set-piece battle against the Greek allies. He began by cutting down all the local trees, and he put his army to work building a rampart to provide a defensible camp for his army. This was all by the river Aesopus, near Thebes. Meanwhile, on the Isthmus of Corinth, the Spartans were joined by their other allies from the Peloponnesus, and then they all marched onward to the sacred city of Eleusis in Attica, where they were joined by the Athenian army. Multiple multiple sacrifices were made during this interval, and Herodotus assures us that the victims were consistently found favorable. The total number of troops involved here is uncertain. Different authors, Herodotus included, tell us that roughly 100,000 allied Greeks fought against Mardonius' Persians and his other allies, fellow Greeks among them. Modern historians question some of the numbers, though, suggesting that the number of helots, for example, is exaggerated, or that it represents a lot of support personnel, who were not troops at all, but rather servants charged with various jobs, cooking, caring for the armor, for the weapons, and other supplies, and so on. About 8,000 Athenian hoplites are included in the overall tally, and this number is not so hard to believe, since we know that there were 10,000 of them at Marathon. Regardless, all agree that the Persians outnumbered the Greeks significantly, but that the Greeks were generally more heavily armored, and, of course, 5,000 of them were Spartans. From Eleusis, the allied army, now complete, marched on to meet the Persians near Thebes. They camped on Mount Kitharon, not far from the city of Plataea. And now Herodotus, having skipped so quickly over previous military engagements, finally Herodotus devotes much of this ninth and last volume to a detailed description of the final battle in the Greek saga of freedom, the Battle of Plataea. Mardonius was eager for a showdown, and so, when he saw that the Greeks had finally appeared for battle, he immediately sent his cavalry against them. These horsemen attacked in divisions, each unit making a separate charge and then wheeling around to return to the main body of Persian cavalry. Most exposed to this attack, just due to the way that the ground lay around the Greek formation, were troops sent from the town of Megara. Now, Megara was a neighbor and a rival of Athens. Nevertheless, when the Megarians sent word to their fellow Greeks that they could not hold their ground without assistance, it was the Athenians who immediately sent 300 men of their own to, to their aid, along with some archers. Now, during this initial attack, one of the Persian noblemen leading the cavalry, by the name of Messistius, was killed. As usual in these situations, and as we can recall from stories like the Iliad, the battle became focused quickly around recovering the body of this leader, The 300 Athenians eventually gave way to the cavalry attack and yielded the body back to the Persians, but the approach of more Greeks forced the Persian cavalry to leave the body of their leader behind. These Persian horsemen returned in disgrace to their camp, where, according to Herodotus, they shaved the hair from their heads and clipped the manes from their horses, wailing in grief for their lost leader. The Greeks, conversely, celebrated the minor victory, they loaded the body of Mecistius onto a wagon and paraded him through the ranks of their army. The men marveled at the stature of the man and at his physical beauty. Motivated by their stand against such fine cavalry now, though, the allied Greeks moved their army to a point solidly between Plataea and the Persian fortifications on the river Aesopus. They made camp near a freshwater fountain called Gargaphia. Now, no one among the greeks disputed the right of the spartans to fight on whichever wing of the army they wanted the right wing of the battle line since time immemorial perhaps was the place of honor and it was expected that the spartans would choose this wing of the army for their forces when the time came to engage the persians again the next place of honor was the left wing and the center was the least honorable It may seem strange to us, this way of thinking, when modern militaries would be more likely to put their strongest forces, or at least their leaders, in the center to at least maintain good good communication, but we will see this again and again with great leaders in Greek history leading from the right wing, the place of honor. Without digressing too much, it seems like this tradition was meant to put the weakest and least reliable troops in the center between two more reliable forces, perhaps to keep them in line, so to speak. Anyway, as the Greeks lined up near the fountain of Gargaphia, there was a dispute about who would get the secondary honor of holding the left wing, and thus avoid being placed in the least honorable position in the center. After arguing amongst themselves, the Athenians reminded everyone of their noble history extending all the way back into mythological times, and of their brave stance at Marathon. Nevertheless, the Athenians said, they were most interested in allied unity and would take up their station wherever the Lacedaemonians wanted them to. The Spartans, after hearing this noble devotion to the cause, happily awarded the left wing to the Athenians. There was more to these arrangements than just honor, though. Obviously, where you lined up in your own formation would determine which enemy unit you would fight against in the upcoming battle. So, as the two armies faced each other then, the Lacedaemonians found themselves posted against the Persian elite forces, since Mardonius wanted his finest troops to face the Spartans. His Medes were placed against a medley of allied Greeks in the center. Finally, against the Athenians, the Megarians, and the Plataeans, Mardonius posted his own Greek allies from Boeotia, Thessaly, Macedonia, and other regions. Now, Do not imagine that these groups were already in contact, these two armies. The the two armies were separated at this juncture by possibly a couple of miles and by the river Esopus. the Persians having marshaled their forces on the the north bank of that river. So as they faced off this way, still at a a distance, each army performed the requisite sacrifices. The Greeks learned from their sacrifices that they were not favorable, favorable for an attack, only for defense. The Persians, also performing Greek rites of sacrifice, found essentially the same, that they would not win if they advanced, but they must remain on the defensive. This standoff lasted, if you can believe it, for 10 days. Each army preferring to take the defensive and wait for the other one to attack. This again shows how important such religious rites were to the ancients. Hard as it is to believe, men with such stakes at play did not apparently rely on their own initiative or their reading of the ground, but rather on how animal entrails appeared to a soothsayer. Now, over the course of those 10 days, there were skirmishes here and there, and the Persians attacked a supply train coming to feed the Greeks. Now, the allied Greek numbers were also growing every day as more reinforcements trickled in from the countryside and from their home cities. Historians do not supply us with any exact numbers of these reinforcements, though. Now, Mardonius grew impatient with the delays. Artabasus, the Persian general who had already seen much warfare with the Greeks during this long struggle, he suggested to Mardonius that they should withdraw, and they should use bribery to divide the Greeks until their resistance was nullified. Mardonius, on the other hand, was eager to attack and instead suggested that they abandon the Greek sacrificial rites and act according to Persian custom and make an immediate attack. To encourage his Greek allies, Mardonius gathered their captains together and he quizzed them about a prophecy that they might have heard about the Persians being destroyed in Greece. He remarked on the prophecy's declaration that, that the Persians would sack the temple at Delphi and then be obliterated. He tried to calm them, then, by reassuring them that he would not go near Delphi, and he would thus avoid the prophecy's doom. At about this same time, Alexander, son of the ruling king of Macedon, not the Alexander who had previously attempted to make alliance with Athens, this Alexander arrived in the Greek allied camp. Though his father and his people were technically allied with the Persians and fighting on their side, he himself had ridden out from the Persian camp under cover of night. He wished the Greeks well, and he advised them about the unfavorable results of the Persians' sacrifices and their reluctance to attack. Merely wait on the defensive, Alexander advised the Greeks. Allow time for the Persians to eat up their provisions and become desperate. If they did not make a foolish attack and suffer defeat, then they would most probably withdraw. Either way, the cause of Greek freedom would win. Then Alexander returned to the Persian camp. Now, sensing the likelihood that the Persians would attack soon, there was consternation in the Greek allied camp. The Persians made an unexpected request of the Athenians to switch wings so that the Athenians would face the Persians. The Spartan leader, Pausanias, speculated that the Athenians would be a better match for the Persians because they had experience fighting this enemy. Presumably, many of the Athenian hoplites' presence would have possibly also been at Marathon some 11 years before. But there is not a Spartan here said Pausanias, who has ever fought against a Mede. Given the exaggeration about Spartan heroic qualities to which we are accustomed, this may come as a shock to our ears. The Spartans were actually backing down from a challenge. The Athenians, though, as always, were ready to do whatever it took to keep the army intact. So there followed a bizarre sequence in which the Greek formation shifted and reformed so that the Athenians might face the Persians directly on the right wing, But then the Persians followed suit and changed their formation so that, again, their elite Persian troops faced the Spartans on the left wing of the Greek army. And then the Greeks switched wings again, and so did the Persians. Mardonius, desiring a direct confrontation between his best Persians and the Spartan legends, he finally sent a herald to stand before the Greeks and to ridicule the Spartans for their cowardice. But no reply of any kind came from the silent Greek army. And then the battle finally began mardonius ordered his cavalry to advance and attack armed with javelins and bows these horsemen inflicted casualties which the greeks could not reciprocate as they had comparatively very little in the way of missile missile weaponry worse the persians drove the spartans away from the fountain of gargaphia where the army got its water and they choked it as herodotus says apparently meaning that they interfered with its flow and ruined it as a water source for the greeks While the Persians had access to the stream of Aesopus. Furthermore, the Persian horse was preventing any resupply caravans from reaching the Greeks. Consequently, the Greek leaders held a council that evening and they decided to withdraw the entire army to a region called the island, a plot of land that sat between two conjoining streams and provided a better locale for a defensive battle. Military experts all agree that this is a dangerous maneuver, to change placement in such a way when directly confronting the enemy already, especially with an allied army such as the Greeks had. The Spartans alone or the the Athenians alone might have had better luck pulling it off with unified commands. As it was, the maneuver went poorly. It was planned for the night, but communication of the decision to move the army was mishandled, and the execution of the withdrawal was worse. Once night fell and the army began moving out, Most of the troops ignored the plan and simply marched back to Plataea, where they took station near the town. However, not everyone seems to have gotten the memo. The soldiers from one unit of Spartan troops believed that it was a cowardly act to retreat from battle with Greece's mortal enemy. It appears that the leader of this unit had not even been at the officer's council, which had voted on the withdrawal, so his men were all surprised when the army picked up and started moving out in the middle of the night. Now the rest of the Spartans, seeing that some of their own were being so brave and unwilling to remove themselves from the enemy's presence, they were displaying such fundamental Spartan character and resolve, now the rest of the Spartans were also unable to move. We have heard how the Spartans allegedly did not believe in retreat, so perhaps it was only acceptable for them because the rest of the allies were also going to withdraw. Seeing just one stubborn unit of troops displaying so much bravery, though, they found their collective honor challenged. Could they really walk away and leave these brave men to be cut to pieces? So the maneuver fell apart, with most troops not even heading in the right direction, and the Spartans not even moving. As the night passed, the entire allied army risked fragmentation and destruction. The Athenians noticed that the Spartans were not executing the agreed upon plan, so they too paused operations and sent messengers to inquire. Pausanias, the leader of the Spartans, and of the entire army really, explained his dilemma. So the Athenians also waited, as the night passed, for the Spartans to follow through on the withdrawal. Finally, dawn neared and the opportunity for safe passage to better ground had nearly passed, and the army was in pieces, spread out along the ground between the original camp and the town of Plataea. Pausanias now lost all patience and ordered the Spartans to march away, to withdraw, Seeing this the Athenians too began to move out. With reluctance and some disbelief the most stubborn of the Spartans also followed. The Athenians moved along a lowland route toward the rest of the army while the Spartan forces marched through the foothills near Mount Cithron. But Mardonius had already sent his cavalry forward by this time. They found the Greek camp abandoned probably just after the last Greek troops left So they sent messengers back to Mardonius with this news, and they pressed on quickly, soon finding the Spartans, and they began attacking them. Mardonius, once he had heard that the Greeks had fled, ordered his entire army to go on the attack. Harassed by the first cavalry assaults, Pausanias sent a horseman to the Athenians with a message, O men of Athens, now the great struggle has come. We too, the Spartans and the Athenians, are deserted by the other allies. The messenger went on to say that, Were the the Persian cavalry attacking the Athenians, the Spartans would rush to their aid. I have to interject here that previous Spartan actions in holding infinite festivals and remaining behind the wall at the Isthmus, these previous actions do not really support the idea that the Spartans would have done the same, but anyway. The messenger also said that the Spartans did not doubt that the Athenians would now come to their aid. About this, Pausanias was right. The Athenians were always eager to fight the Persians. But they could not go to aid the Spartans because the Greeks that fought alongside the Persians now attacked the Athenians, and the chaos of combat engulfed them all. The Spartans, all 50,000 of them, according to Herodotus, who appears to include the others that followed afterward and also the 3,000 men from the city of Tegea, now within the environs of Plataea, this entire group found itself engaged with the mass of Mardonius's Persians, who formed a wicker wall or rampart with their shields and from behind its cover began firing clouds of arrows into the Spartan ranks. Herodotus here reports that the Spartans actually performed sacrifices at this juncture and were disappointed that the victims were not favorable. We've heard this terminology before, but it probably strikes most modern listeners quite dramatically here, imagining that under severe assault and on the move, the brave men of Lacetamon would consult animal entrails to determine whether or not they should attack an enemy who was downing one Spartan after the other. Multiple sacrifices in sequence failed to provide favorable victims. Finally, the leader, Pausanias, caught sight of the Heraum, the temple of Hera in Plataea, nearby. He called out to the goddess to aid him. Just then, according to the tale, the victims of the latest sacrifice were shown to be favorable for an attack. And simultaneously, the small tegean formation advanced against the Spartan line. The Spartans followed. Their pent-up fury and fear was unleashed as they ran into the Persian wicker wall. The Persians, for their part, put down their bows, and now hand-to-hand combat was waged not far from the temple of Demeter in Plataea. Herodotus does the Persians justice here, and he speaks well of their bravery and their ferocity in combat, even though they wore much lighter armor things went well for the persians at first especially wherever mardonius appeared to lead the fight riding on his white horse as long as he was alive the spartans could only just hold their ground but mardonius did not survive this battle he fell from his horse slain by a spartan warrior and when this happened the persians panicked they fled then all the way back to the rampart that they had built near thebes artabasis the persian general and the rival of mardonius leading his own division of some 40,000 Persians himself, did not even stop there. He immediately led all of his troops north, toward the Hellespont, eager to cross back into the present safety of Asia. Many of his men would later be lost to the harassing attacks of Thracians, who now saw which side was the winner in this struggle, and turned on the foreigners that they had previously welcomed. He would also lose many troops to hunger and desertion, before reti- finally returning safely into Asia, fully defeated. The Athenians now, for their part, struggled for some time against the traitorous Greeks who fought for Xerxes, but eventually these enemies also fled the scene, returning mostly to the city of Thebes. Now, much of the Persian army was made up of allies from various regions of the empire, and most of them never even entered into combat on this day, this great day in Greek history. When they saw the stalwart Persians run from battle, they too fled, without even trying to stop the Greek onslaught. The fleeing Persians did reach their fortress near Thebes, and they had plenty of time, enough time anyway, to man the walls and towers and prepare for the Greek attack. The Spartans arrived soon after. They struggled to make any progress in the battle, however, not being accustomed to attacking fortifications of any sort. Soon, though, the Athenians arrived, and these men furiously attacked until they breached the wall and the entire Greek army, fueled by decades of wrath poured into the compound. Herodotus estimates that of the 300,000 men who came with Mardonius, besides the 40,000 who fled with Artabasus, he estimates that only 3,000 survived this battle. He may very well be exaggerating, but there can be little doubt that the vengeance of Greece was poured out on the Persians, who now found themselves trapped in this foreign land, in a ramshackle fortress. The revenge of Leonidas was accomplished. There follow in the text of this history many accounts of individual bravery. Notable among them is the mad savagery of Aristotemus, who had missed his opportunity to die with the 300 at Thermopylae a year earlier. He died fighting in this battle, but in the aftermath, when others were glorified for their deeds, the Spartans merely passed over his name. He had done enough to nullify his previous shame, but no more. Herodotus also tells tales of the honor of Pausanias, the Spartan leader. Many centuries later, Plutarch will have his own tales to tell of this man with less honorable detail, but Herodotus makes it clear that the Spartan regent of the son of Leonidas was a man of good character, who in the aftermath of the battle, for instance, dealt kindly with a Greek woman who had been concubine to one of the Persian leaders, and he also refused to desecrate the body of Mardonius. Now, though, It was time to divvy up the spoils of war. In the last podcast from my first series on the Persian Empire, I described how the Persians had come from a hardy race of men who rode horses, fought bravely, ate sparingly, and had little to do with the finery of the debauched people whom they had conquered, such as the Babylonians. That had all changed in a few generations, though. Mardonius, brave as he was, was also a modern Persian, if I can use that term here, He came to the battlefield with riches, with fine food, with a horde of servants and harems of women. Indeed, Xerxes had left Mardonius with his own personal war tent and all the finery that came with it. The Greeks, having lived now for years on the edge of defeat, were the victors, the takers of these spoils. They could hardly believe the wealth just in Mardonius' war camp. Pausanias, the Spartan general, in command of all the Greek land forces, seeing all this, gathered together the captured cooks and bakers of the Persian war kitchen. He ordered them to prepare a meal such as they might have prepared for Mardonius and his officers. When this was done, he then ordered his own men to prepare, alongside the fine Persian dinner, a table fitted out for a simple Spartan meal. Then he invited his own officers to come and view the two tables and to marvel that such rich men should come to rob them of their own meager wealth. The helots, the Spartan slave class, were placed in charge of the captured treasure of the Persians. Herodotus describes how the poor helots, ignorant and desperate, sold much of these treasures secretly for next to nothing to other Greeks. The Greeks did not fail, though, to respect the gods. One-tenth of the total take was loaded up and sent to the oracle at Delphi to be donated to the gods. Some of that money was used to fund the making of two huge bronze statues, one of Zeus and the other of Poseidon. The rest, the silver and the gold, the beasts of burden, the women, the jewelry, all were divided up among the soldiers according to their deeds and bravery in battle. Pausanias, of course, received the greatest portion of all. Even so, Even with the eager, hungry Greeks gathering up the spoils of victory, even so for years afterward, the locals, the Plataeans, they would still find little bits of treasure fallen here and there on the abandoned battlefield. Now, Mardonius' body eventually disappeared and was never found, but the Greek dead were lovingly cared for. Numerous graves and tombs and markers were built here. Each Greek nation present, the Spartans, the Athenians, Plataeans, Tegeans, Agenetans, and so on, each prepared their dead and interred them in the earth according to their own fashion, their own rites. The Spartans buried their youngest dead soldiers all together in one grave. Then they buried their other soldiers in a second, and the fallen Helots were buried in a third grave. Regiments from some Greek cities showed up after the battle, not in time to participate in perhaps the greatest Greek battlefield victory of all time. Some of these cities, when they learned of this disgraceful absence, shamed their own leaders for failing to get their troops there in time, and they sent those leaders into exile as punishment. Many of the troops that arrived late also built tombs on the site, but they left them empty, since they had not contributed any dead to Greek glory. And now... It was time for revenge upon the traitors. The treasure divvied up, the sacred dead buried in the now hallowed ground of Plataea. The officers of the Greek army met in council and declared war on Thebes. They sent messengers to the people of Thebes and gave them a way out. Offer up your traitorous leaders and we will spare your city. Thebes refused and the tireless Greeks, fresh off their defeat of the Persians, set down to besiege the rebel city. After 20 days of this siege, the leaders of the city of Thebes agreed to turn to, to be turned over to their Greek allies to spare their fellow Thebans any more suffering. One of the Theban leaders, however, escaped immediately after this, so the city offered up his sons to Pausanias. The Spartan leader refused to punish children for the evil of their father, though. He sent them back home. Then Pausanias dismissed the entire army and returned with the captured Theban leaders to Corinth. And there, he slew them all. This might seem like the end, the end to this long struggle. You might say that the conflict began at Marathon, or perhaps at the burning of Sardis, Or maybe you would go all the way back to the overthrow of the Median Empire by Cyrus the Great, or maybe you would go all the way back to the rise of the Persians themselves. I think its roots really go all the way back to the Proto-Indo-Europeans. Recall the 12th episode in my first series on the ancient world about the Proto-Indo-Europeans. These Proto-Indo-Europeans had appeared thousands of years before as a distinct cultural and language group, probably somewhere between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Some of them had migrated west with their horses and their oxen and their wheeled wagons. Over the centuries and the millennia, they had become Greeks, Latins, Celts, Norse, and other European ethnicities and cultures. But other Proto-Indo-Europeans had gone east, into India, and become the Hindus. Some, though, had migrated south from their homeland, into the badlands east of Babylon and west of India, and there they had become the Persians. And now these long lost cousins, the Greeks and the Persians, both of them descendants of Indo-European speaking cultures, had come into an inevitable conflict over the dominion of the Eastern Mediterranean. Regardless of the conflict's origins, the Persians had now been soundly defeated more than once in head-to-head confrontation with these uncouth Greeks, who similarly, similarly deemed their Persian enemies as barbarians. And the Persians and their Asian allies had fled from Europe. Their Greek allies had returned to their own cities, where they awaited the judgment of the victors. And the Spartan general Pausanias had broken up the army, had sent each formation home with treasure, prizes, and trophies. He had slain the worst of the traitors. Greece was free. Even the towns and cities that had willingly accepted the Persian yoke, even they had been liberated by the blood of Athenians, Spartans, and others. But let us not forget that Greek fleet, which had been victorious the year before at Salamis. It had not been inactive. The Persians had cleared out of the Aegean Sea almost entirely. They had dismissed their Phoenician allies and avoided battle with the Greeks. The Greek fleet was now berthed at the port on the island of Delos in the Cyclades. They were led by a Spartan, of course, a man named Leotychides. The Athenians, fickle as always, had already tired of Themistocles, and he was not with the fleet. We will not hear more about Themistocles for a few years. Instead, the Athenian corps of the Greek navy was led by one of Themistocles' personal enemies, a member of the Alcmenid clan named Xanthippus, the man who had brought charges against Miltiades a decade before. These men, overseeing the fleet, were pondering their next move, even as the Battle of Plataea was taking shape. They were not willing to let events shape their decisions. No, they well understood that now they must press the Persian at all times, in all places. The best defense, they say, is a good offense. But the events which followed, the military deeds which the Greek fleet undertook, belong more properly to the next era of Greek history, the era of the Athenian Empire. We will come to that in the next episode. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.